Book Dreams, a member of the Podglomerate Network and LitHub Radio. Hello, and welcome to Book Dreams, the podcast for everyone who loves books and misses English class. I'm Julie Sternberg, author of a number of children's books, including Like Pickle Juice on a Cookie and Summer of Stolen Secrets, a middle grade novel that is due out in May. And I'm Eve Yohalem. I'm also a children's book author. My books include The Truth According to Blue and Cast Off, The Strange Adventures of Petra de Winter and Brom Broen. In each episode of this podcast, we consider a book-related question. And in this episode, we consider how books can help us recover forgotten history. We're discussing the story of Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman in America to receive an MD, and her younger sister, Emily, who was the third. Together, they ended up opening a women's medical college, as well as the New York Infirmary for Indigent Women and Children, which was the first hospital staffed entirely by women, and which went on to treat more than a million patients in its first hundred years. This episode has a special meaning for me because my older daughter, her whole life, she's wanted to be a doctor, and she just took the MCATs. And it feels really moving to think of the women who overcame tremendous hurdles to pave the path for others, in no small part, let me just say, due to their obstinance and arrogance, which I love. I love that, you know, especially Elizabeth Blackwell was so convinced of her ability, and that's what allowed her to pave the road for her own sister, Emily, and for my Emily, my daughter. Well, I have no special tie to the Blackwells, but I love medical history. The gorier, the better. And this period in medical history was especially gory. So (laughs) get excited. It was fun. It was fun to read. (laughs) So let's get to it. We spoke to Janice Nomura. Janice received a Public Scholar Award from the National Endowment for the Humanities in support of her work on the Doctors Blackwell. Her previous book, Daughters of the Samurai, A Journey from East to West and Back, was a New York Times notable book in 2015. Her essays and book reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Los Angeles Times, Smithsonian, the Rumpus, and LitHub, among other publications. We started by asking Janice what made her decide to write a book about the Blackwell Doctors. She explained it stemmed in part from the fact that her first book had resonated with her personal story in various ways. One thing I knew was that in order to do this kind of long-term, long-form work, you really need to have a personal deep connection to the material that you're working on. You need to love it. And so I kind of looked inside myself and sort of asked, what else is in there that I can connect to? And what else is in there turned out to be pre-med me from 1989. I had been a math science kid and had hit college with the intention of pursuing medicine and then was seduced by an extraordinary English department and thought, well, this is much more fun. Uh, I think I'll do this. Never occurred to me to do both. You know, I had just finished this book about pioneering 19th century women, which was fun. And I wanted to do more pioneering 19th century women. And then I stumbled across the Blackwells and was just astonished that I had never heard of them. And this despite going to a proudly feminist all-girls school from the age of five and growing up in the city where they practiced. I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of them. So it seemed like a story that was ripe for retelling and a field that I was excited to have an excuse to go deeply into. Stepping back for a second, what do you think makes for a compelling biography? When you're doing archival research, and for the Blackwell story, there was mountains of it. 
you start kind of training your eye on the bits that glitter, on the things that connect to your five senses or that make your eyebrows go up or that you're still thinking about the next day. The bits that really speak to Mm. story. Basically, what I did was collect shiny things until I had a huge pile of shiny things and then strung them all together. My dirty little secret is that I am not an avid reader of doorstop biography. I like narrative momentum. I read a lot more fiction than nonfiction. I was trying to write what I would want to read. I try to write biography for people who don't think they like to read history. Mm -hmm. What were the challenges of writing this particular book? First of all, there were nine Blackwell siblings, Mm. and they never stopped writing to each other. (laughs) I mean, there were thousands and thousands of pieces of material. They seemed to intersect with just about every boldface name of the 19th century, people about whom many, many books have been written. And then it just wasn't an, there wasn't an obvious narrative thread. There were sort of the lives of these women and then the broad canvas of the, basically the entire 19th century and not just New York, but also several stops in Europe and some in the Midwest here. So it was just big and daunting. Yeah. And part of the reason why adult books about the Blackwells were a little thin on the ground is that the Blackwell sisters were, they were not immediately lovable. They were extraordinarily determined and brilliant women who were not always easy to be around. And I think that had probably turned off other biographers in the past. I happen to have been raised by many cranky but fabulous women. (laughs) So I wasn't phased by their prickliness. It's what kind of drew me toward them in a way. And do you think there would have been more had the Blackwell sisters been men? I mean, do you think sexism just as sexism was at play? The books that existed tended to be children's books, where all of the complexity and the rough edges and the contradictions were rubbed away. But yeah, I think that we as a culture prefer our heroines to be adorable and very princess-like. Do you remember any particularly fun finds in your research process? You know, moments when you thought, I had no idea, or this is gold. Oh, gosh. There were a lot. So, for instance, Elizabeth uh, faced sort of a, a catastrophic illness right after she received her medical degree, where she lost one eye to an infection that was contracted in the hospital. And you can see first of all, you can see her handwriting shift. And that Mm. to me is very poignant. You can feel this woman struggling to do something that had come easily to her just a week before. But in general, what I love most about the research process is following the subjects around, standing where they stood, trying to feel what they felt, tracking down artifacts where possible that they held or were used. That to me is the, the real sort of proximity to ghosts moment. Can you tell the story actually of the illness that Elizabeth contracted, because I think it gets at the kind of conditions that she was working in and the particular circumstances of how she injured her eye, I think. And then the treatment that she underwent tells a lot about medicine. 
Yeah, no, you're you're right. It was a, it was it's a great lens for the whole moment. Medical school in the in 1840s in America was pretty rudimentary, and you could graduate from it with an alarming level of practical ignorance, having not really ever touched a patient. So she did what many newly fledged MDs did, which was to go to Europe and study there to get her practical training. So she went to Paris. And she enrolled herself as a student at a hospital called La Maternité, which was a public maternity hospital um, for the training of midwives from all over France. If you were delivering a baby in a hospital in 1850 in France, you were destitute because anyone with any money would deliver their child at home. So the patient community of this hospital uh, were women, you know, really in miserable condition, many of them prostitutes, many of them infected with venereal diseases. And when a baby passes through the birth canal of a woman with gonorrhea, they can emerge with something called gonorrheal conjunctivitis. And Elizabeth was tending to one of these infants when some of the washing liquid she was using to clean its infected eye splashed into her face. And she contracted gonorrheal conjunctivitis, which today would be treated fairly straightforwardly with antibiotics, but then was catastrophic. And she sort of lay in bed in the hospital for the next several weeks, unsure whether she was going to retain any sight at all, eventually emerged um, with partial sight in one eye. Any woman I know in the situation would have gone straight home to convalesce and regroup. But no, she took off alone across Europe by stagecoach to a spa run by a peasant savant who had had wonderful success with what was then known as the water cure or hydrotherapy. Basically, people would come to this hamlet where he had created the spa and do things with water, drink it, bathe in it, sweat in it, be wrapped in wet bandages. And she hoped that maybe he could restore her sight where the hospital medicine had not. And this, as you say, it's a great kind of lens because this is a moment where medicine is changing and everything is kind of on the table. Elizabeth, even though she was trying to establish herself as a doctor in a man's profession, she was also questioning newer techniques and therapies that might be effective. And it's interesting to try to, to watch her walk this line between not being dismissed as a, a faddist or a quack, but also maybe this sort of fresh air and cold water idea has some merit to it. Ready for the gory part? Oh, yes, I am. <laughs> okay. Here's how Elizabeth's eye was treated, according to Janice. They cauterized her eyelids. That means they burned them. Mm -hmm. They <laughs> syringed her eyes with the medicated eye wash known as collyrium. A pharmacopoeia of the period mentions everything from rose water to ammonia to sulfuric acid as possible ingredients. They applied leeches to her temples. They painted her forehead with mercury and hellbore. They administered mustard plasters, purgatives, ointments of belladonna, and opium. Elizabeth lived on water and broth, her eyes enormously swollen. Her sleep interrupted every two hours as her doctor peeled away the opaque membrane forming over the more severely affected left cornea. You might be saddened and surprised to learn that none of these treatments had any positive effect. She ended up with a glass eye for the rest of her life. On a positive note, it was apparently a very good glass eye. Like yes. apparently it was hard to tell that the eye was glass. So that's something. There you go. Well, next we talked to Janice about other ways the times were changing in medicine. It seems like it was also an inflection point 
um, for who became doctors back then. I mean, not just the sort of professionalization of midwifery, which had always been the domain of women and now is becoming more the domain of the professional doctor, but who became doctors? I mean, hitherto, as you say, doctoring was more of a trade than a profession. Now, with the advent of medical schools, it was increasingly a profession of men who increasingly used instruments and not herbs, you know, forceps for delivery and not just their hands. But at the same time, the men who went to medical school tended to be the ones who weren't smart enough to study the law. It wasn't yet something that was prestigious. And medical school was pretty basic. It consisted basically in the 1840s of two 16-week terms that you repeated in two consecutive years. And uh, it was 100% lecture. If you were lucky, you got to watch some dissection. If you were really lucky, you got to do some dissection. But you didn't work with patients. You didn't learn at the bedside. It was an incredibly um, remote and sketchy (laughs) kind of training. So yeah, I mean, the Blackwells came to medicine and the profession uh, at a time where institutionally and scientifically, everything was in flux. And when you say repeated, you mean that literally? Yeah. You hear the same lectures year one as you do year two. Exactly. I mean, how ridiculous. Yeah, it's crazy. Do we know whether other women before Elizabeth had tried to get into medical school and failed? I believe that she was the first to achieve a seat in a medical lecture hall. She inspired women immediately after her. Um, The other thing that happened after Elizabeth Blackwell's success was that in response to more and more women being interested in studying medicine in an organized way, women's medical colleges began to open, which was both an important advance And a frustrating one, as far as the Blackwells were concerned, because they thought women's medical colleges were sort of mediocre. But as long as they existed, no men's medical college would admit a woman because they would say, why do you need to come here? Why would you want to come here? Why would you want to study the genitalia in the company of men? What kind of a woman are you? What is it, do you think, that made Elizabeth and Emily pioneers? I think Elizabeth's personality was singular. She was voraciously brilliant, extremely well-read, and had a really healthy ego. She thought highly of herself. She didn't think highly of a whole lot of other people. She thought of herself as someone who could do something important. She was very kind of unapologetic about that. And she came across the writings of Margaret Fuller, the transcendentalist editor and writer, who was very much part of the Blackwell's intellectual circle. And Margaret Fuller had written this book, this bestseller called Woman in the 19th Century, in which she had argued that humanity would only achieve enlightenment if women proved that they could do anything men could do, that it was up to women to prove it themselves. It wasn't up to men to unshackle women and that women could be anything just by virtue of talent and effort. And so Elizabeth heard that and thought, maybe I could be that kind of example. So she chose medicine strategically. She wasn't called to healing. She didn't really like people, but she liked the idea of helping humanity. And if she you know, went to all the lectures and passed all the examinations, who could say that she wasn't qualified to be a doctor? And then for Emily, Elizabeth, I think, recognized that this path that she had chosen was hard and steep and lonely, and she wanted company. And she thought most highly of her own family. And so she kind of anointed Emily, her five years younger sister, who was also quite 
brilliant and inclined toward natural science to follow her into medicine. So Emily, whose character was less domineering than Elizabeth's, she listened to Elizabeth and followed her and became really the more brilliant practitioner. Elizabeth's high-mindedness led her toward public policy and public health more so than practice. To what extent do you think they decided at some point, you know, I don't want to be my mother, I don't want to be my, my grandmother, I don't want to be my aunts? Yeah. I think right from the start, the Blackwell children were, were mostly born in Bristol, England, where they were um, part of an extended family um, that included many what they referred to as starveling aunts, their <laughs> father's sisters who hadn't married and were kind of hangers on at the edges of the family, didn't have anything to call their own, really, um, and were kind of somewhat pathetic, I think, in the eyes of their nieces and nephews, the Blackwell siblings. They emigrated to America because their father, who was a sugar refiner, dreamed of finding a way to refine sugar that wasn't made from cane grown with enslaved labor. He wanted to make it out of sugar beets in the north. So he, he took them all the way out to Cincinnati, which was like a frontier town This in 1838. And then he died, broke. Mm -hmm leaving his widow with nine children on the edge of the known universe. So a husband was no guarantee of security, very clearly. And none of the five Blackwell sisters ever married. And all of them worked in various ways to support their family. So this was sort of baked into their family's history. The sexism of the time was interesting in its complexity. You know, there was this idea that women are too delicate and therefore shouldn't be allowed into medical school. But then again, once Elizabeth and Emily actually got in to medical school, they experienced quite a lot of chivalrousness and respect from the men they worked with, some of whom quickly turned around the moment they graduated and started closing those same doors again right. you know, to all other women. So can you talk about that? I don't know how to describe it, not whiplash, but those contradictions. Well, I think there's a lot of analog to our own modern biases. There's the, I don't like X category of people, but I like you. Yeah. Elizabeth and Emily, once they got inside, they were really skillful women. They couldn't help but impress the men they were working with. It was the sort of backwards and in heels skill that they showed. Their fellow students recognized that they could probably do better working alongside these really talented women, copy their homework. But then there was the macro, gosh, what will people think of me having gotten my degree from an institution that admitted a woman? Is this going to devalue my institution and by extension devalue my place in the world? I don't want that. And then at the same time, there was the Blackwells themselves doing that to other women saying, okay, you may also have a medical degree, but I'm not sure you're up to my standards. So I'm not sure I want to work alongside you. Elizabeth Blackwell was the first to get a medical degree. Emily was the third. That begs the question, who was the second? Well, the second was a woman named Nancy Talbot Clark, who received her medical degree from the same place as Emily. But the Blackwells always kind of looked sideways at what they called little Mrs. Clark, and not in a nice way. I think that constant tension between what do I think of you and what does the world think of me? That is something that is happening at all levels, all the way through the story into the present. I want to talk a little bit more about Elizabeth's <laughs> megalomania. I don't know what you would call it. And there are times in her writings when she seems to cast herself as or align herself with Jesus. <laughs> yes. And I'm wondering, you know, 
it's a broader question, I guess, whether you think that kind of quality is necessary, whether it's common in folks who confront and break barriers the way that she did. Yeah. I mean, I think in order to do something that has never been done before, you have to have an inordinately strong sense of your own power. And Elizabeth did. I mean, I think some of it was wrapped up with some of the religious input that she had. She would refer to herself as one of the elects in sort of a Calvinist way. You know, God has anointed me. And so whatever I think is the right thing to do must be the right thing to do. That can come off, you know, fairly (laughs) off-putting. But at the same time, it's what fueled her. It's what kept her going. And there are times where she really does seem to be thinking about God as a colleague rather than as a deity. (laughs) But at the same time, you know, I, I think that if you took some of the most powerful trailblazers you can think of and fed them truth serum... They would have similar thoughts in their heads, even if they didn't commit them to paper the way Elizabeth did. Mm. I firmly believe that. Yeah. I'm having a hard time deciding whether I like Elizabeth Blackwell for all the reasons (laughs) that we're just talking about. I think she teaches such an important lesson about reminding ourselves that you don't have to be likable to achieve great things. I think we get hung up so much in our society on, especially on, powerful women being likable. Yeah. I'm, of course, thinking of Hillary Clinton. Someone like Hillary or Elizabeth, they're criticized both because they don't meet the notion of what a woman should be. And then on the flip side, right, they're not seen as what a president should be or what a doctor should be. Right. Yeah. They're really stuck. I kept thinking about that. You know, you know, I love to read fantasy. I love folklore and storytelling and fantasy, both ancient and modern. And, you know, the heroine is always young and pretty. When she goes on her quest, there may be old crones, but they're the ones that she meets along the way, takes their wisdom and keeps going. They stay put. They don't come along on the quest. They're just there for either comic relief or the tools that our princess needs to succeed. And I am fascinated by the crones on the side of the road. And I think that we would all do much better if we would follow them (laughs) instead of the princesses. I really warmed to Elizabeth and Emily as take no prisoners, females who were trying to get something done, damn it. Florence Nightingale was another famous healthcare provider at the time. What was the nature of her relationship with the Blackwell doctors? Elizabeth and Florence Nightingale met each other in London in 1850-51. They were introduced by mutual friends. And this was before Florence Nightingale was Florence Nightingale. At this point, she was a young woman from a wealthy family who really wanted her to settle down and get married. And she had huge ideas of what she wanted to achieve in the field of public health and in bringing certain new ideas to nursing. Her meeting with Elizabeth was this ecstatic communion because here was Elizabeth Blackwell, this woman who had left her family behind, gotten a medical degree, was re- you know ranging all over Europe studying. She was very inspiring to Florence Nightingale as what a woman could do. She didn't have to get married. So they had this kind of ecstatic few days of communion where they went to her country house and, and talked and talked and were really enthralled by each other. But what they eventually came to recognize was that Florence Nightingale had a very specific idea that women needed to be nurses and change the face of hygiene. Mm -hmm. And Elizabeth wasn't interested in 
being a nurse, in training nurses, she wanted to prove something about women doctors. And though they always corresponded and sort of came in and out of each other's lives for the rest of their lives, they never could find this real common ground. I think Elizabeth Blackwell, especially, always had a, a degree of envy for the kind of fame that Nightingale commanded and the kind of resources that she commanded as a result of that fame. Why do you think Florence Nightingale became a household name when the Blackwells didn't? I think she stayed in her lane. She committed to the womanly art of nursing. Yeah. She was quite attractive. She was socially in the right place, well-connected. And I think she fulfilled people's ideas of what a, a heroine should look like. You know, she was the lady with the lamp in a way that the Blackwells never quite managed. They just didn't have the, that knack for being public figures. Yeah. All right. Really important Florence Nightingale question. Can you tell us more about the little owl she kept in her pocket? <laughs> Wasn't that amazing? <laughs> right. So she had traveled. And I would like a little owl. To I, me too. Them. Oh my goodness. My, my demon, my familiar. Um, yeah. I loved that. So she had traveled in Greece and she had gone to the Acropolis. She had found this tiny little owl on the steps of the Acropolis. So she named it Athena and put it in her pocket and took it home. And in fact, it's still there. It's stuffed in the Florence Nightingale Museum in London. Oh. Um, but boy, yes, I love that detail. I wanted an owl for my pocket. Although I'm not sure I, I was really cool to keep it in her pocket. Yeah. No, no. I mean, from a, you know, a, a, an animal rights perspective, <laughs> just to acknowledge that it's totally not okay. <laughs> but I really want an owl in my pocket. Right? Right. Yes. Um, on a more serious note, uh, Elizabeth was a staunch abolitionist, but she seemed at times to struggle to see slaves as fully human. Elizabeth operated on an ideological plane where she was most comfortable. When it came to actually interacting with Black people, that was less comfortable. And I think that was true for a lot of ardent abolitionists who lived in New York. They weren't confronted with the true wretchedness that was life enslaved areas. What gives me some extra sense that Elizabeth wasn't just kind of a, a, a limousine abolitionist, if you will, um, was that when a young doctor, a young black doctor named Rebecca Cole came to the infirmary, having graduated from the Women's Medical College in Philadelphia, the Blackwells took her on as a resident assistant as a matter of course. She showed up, she was competent. So what if she was black? And she became one of their sanitary visitors, the young medical graduates who fanned out into the tenements and brought hygiene and ideas about parenting to poor women. So I think, you know, like a lot of activists, male or female, in their own comfort zones, they were strong in their beliefs and were able to do a fair amount of good. The discomfort they showed most was when they were transplanted to teaching positions early on in, say, Kentucky or the Carolinas, where they were living among slaveholders and slaves and were really way out of their comfort zone and also way out of their sense of the parameters of their own power. They didn't really know what they could do in alien territory to change anything. And that dissonance was very upsetting to them. I think it's very interesting that although neither Elizabeth nor Emily ever married, both adopted children. And Elizabeth's relationship with her ward was alarming. <laughs> 
<laughs> Can you tell us about it and sort of comment on what it reflects about her character? You know, Elizabeth was not someone who was easy with human connection. She wasn't good at it. She thought of herself as someone who didn't really need it. But the fact was, we all need it at some level. And so she, in the 1850s, at a point where she had finished her training, was struggling to find a practice and was alone in New York, she was starting to slide into a depression. And in order to counteract it, she went to the orphanage and picked out an Irish orphan um, named Kitty Barry, who was about six or seven at the time, as sort of a daughter, sort of a servant, and sort of a fan. She really needed someone who would unconditionally support her, I think, um, without questioning her or competing with her. And Kitty turned out to have been an extraordinary choice because she really fit herself to this very strange role that Elizabeth created for her. She never called her mom. She called her Dr. Elizabeth. Somebody commented that she fit herself to all of Elizabeth's hard edges like an eiderdown quilt. And even though Elizabeth had been this pioneer for a woman to have a career in medicine, Kitty was never invited to either marry or have a career. It was pretty clear that her role was to do neither and to just stay by Elizabeth's side. And when Kitty died at a very ripe old age, she requested that her ashes be buried in Elizabeth's grave. Wow. So, you know, I think the way they adopted children was very indicative of the ways that they were different. Emily also adopted a daughter, but she adopted an infant who called her mama and signed her letters with kisses and went on to marry and give Emily four grandchildren. It's really interesting to see all the people, kind of their inherent contradictions. It's really fascinating. This project was challenging in a lot of ways. There was a lot to learn and a lot to figure out, but I kept coming back to the ways in which these women reminded me of all of the women around me who are always struggling to figure things out. We are not living in storybooks. <laughs> no one does. And storybooks have their place. But when you're trying to tell real lives, you have to leave all of the trailing threads in place because that's real. It's interesting how principles don't always translate to behavior. In Elizabeth's case, both with respect to abolitionists and also even with respect to the empowerment of women. Okay, you're being kind. The Blackwell <laughs> sisters had terrible attitudes about women. Not, not all women, but broad categories of women. I mean, basically anyone who wasn't a trailblazer. They had scorn for nurses. They had scorn for traditional women who married and didn't have careers. They even had scorn for suffragists. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I find the case of Nancy Talbot Clark to be particularly mm. illustrative. Nancy was the second woman to receive an MD after Elizabeth and just before Emily. She graduated from the same medical school as Emily, and she actually traveled from Boston to Cleveland to support and honor Emily at Emily's graduation, which, you know, yeah. she didn't have to do. And A lot of effort. A lot of effort. Probably wasn't that easy at that time. But the Blackwell sisters were very dismissive of her, in part because she chose to focus on obstetrics and in part because she was conventionally pretty, which is interesting. I think, you know, I loved what Janice had to say about valuing the old crones on the road. You know, mm -hmm. I, I holy, yes. holy, you know. as an old crone. <laughs> exactly. I, I just could not support that more, except I do think that 
there's a flip side to that, right? Conventional prettiness can sometimes lead to being undervalued by other women. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. But I think it's also fair to say that Elizabeth in particular had no sense of the collective. There was no concept of sisterhood. And she blamed women for their own failure to be emancipated. And, you know, while I'm all for individual responsibility, exceptionalism is not a path to liberation. That said, despite their shortcomings, the Blackwell sisters weren't villains. They were brave, brilliant women. And I am grateful to them for opening the door to medicine for future generations of women, including your Emily. I am too. And that's it for this episode of the Book Dreams podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And if you like the podcast and think someone else would too, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast player. It really helps us to find other listeners. It does. And be sure to let us know if there's a book-related topic you've wondered about, and we'll try looking into it in a future episode. You can reach us for that reason or any other at contact at bookdreamspodcast.com. We're also on Twitter at bookdreamspod and on Instagram at bookdreamspodcast. You can find Janice at janicenamora.com or on Twitter as at janicenamora. Many thanks to our associate producer, Gianfranco Lentini, and to our theme music composer, Maya Polsky. You can find Eve at eveohallam.com and me at juliesternberg.com. And check out the podcast website, www.bookdreamspodcast.com. Until next time, happy book dreaming. Happy book dreaming. Love, come listen to Book Dreams with Julie and me.